if you're not driving or walking, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine a couple in their mid to late 20s. We'll call them Shannon and Joe. Shannon hadn't been feeling well in the mornings. She thought she might have been pregnant. She even took a home pregnancy test, which was positive. But she didn't want to get too excited. You know, you have to confirm things like this. Shannon made a doctor's appointment one afternoon, and she went to go get that pregnancy test. The doctor gave her the news that no one is prepared to hear, even if you've been trying. Shannon's doctor walked in. She looked her in the eyes, and she said, Shannon, you're pregnant. Shannon was stunned. She had emotions swirling around in her head. She didn't know quite how to express them, so she walked to her car almost in a daze to drive home to tell Joe. Joe came home from work early that day. He was committed to staying positive no matter what the test results were. He thought he would do something nice for Shannon, so he made her a really nice dinner in preparation for her coming home. He was standing at the sink, washing one of the glasses as she returned from her trip to the doctor. Shannon walked into the house, and Joe turned to her, standing there at the sink, clutching the glass, and he said, Well, honey, what's the news? Shannon stopped. She took a deep breath, and she said, Joe, I'm pregnant. Joe was, was stunned. He, he didn't know what to do. His mind raced. He, he was in such shock that he dropped the glass that he was holding in his hand, and the, ha- the, the glass fell to the floor, and it shattered. And he ran to her, and they both, crying, fell to their knees. And Joe wrapped his arms around Shannon and held her close, and he said to her, Honey, we will beat this. They only told their immediate family They were still digesting the news, and they didn't want to ruin everyone's day with their problems. Most of the family members were supportive. They offered thoughts and prayers, but a lot just sat there. They were uncomfortable with how to respond to such news. At the end of their first trimester, they announced their pregnancy on Facebook and Instagram, and the comments were mixed. Some said it was a blessing in disguise. Others said they would get through it. And others were confident in Shannon and Joe's resolve to fight this and to beat it. Joe and Shannon went in for their first ultrasound, and the doctor asked them if they'd like to hear the heartbeat. And Shannon wasn't sure. She'd been kind of adjusting and kind of thinking about how to to deal with this pregnancy. But Joe was emphatic. He looked at the doctor and he said, no, we do not want to hear the heartbeat. We don't want to hear about a due date. We do not want to know the gender. We need to keep a positive attitude. Talking about even delivering this baby is out of the question. We are going to beat this. By now, Shannon was starting to show. She had to buy new clothes, and even strangers were starting to notice that she was pregnant. Shannon had started coming to terms with the fact that she's pregnant, but Joe would not have it. Every time she tried to sit down with Joe and talk about decorating the nursery or how they would need to adjust the budget or even talking about baby names and how to manage childcare, Joe was unwilling to listen to her. He told her that they needed to stay positive, that talking this way was giving up. 
he was frantically researching cures and critical trials on how to just make a pregnancy just disappear and how to make a baby vanish. There was no way that this was going to happen. Now Shannon can start to feel the baby move. She's accepted that this is how it's going to be. She's going to be a mother. But she tries to hide that excitement from Joe, who is upset that she hasn't had any wine or beer since finding out that she was pregnant. He doesn't want anything to change, and he can't understand why she's changing her behavior. He sees every adjustment as just giving up or giving in. When Shannon tries to place Joe's hand on her belly to feel the baby move, he changes the subject or walks away. He keeps saying that attitude is everything. The pregnancy continues, and one day, Shannon's water breaks. They get in the car, and they rush to the hospital, and Joe is telling Shannon to hang on, that their love is strong, that they can get through this. Frantically, they get to the delivery room. Shannon is screaming. Joe is telling her that it will be okay, that she just needs to hang on a little bit longer, that they can still beat it. One more big push, and they hear the sound of a baby crying. The doctor says, it's a girl, and places their baby into Shannon's arms. Shannon looks at Joe. Joe looks at Shannon. They both look at their daughter. No name, no nursery, no budget, no maternity leave, no plan. Just two people with nine months to prepare for something that was inevitable. Yet they did nothing. What if we treated birth the same way that we treat death? This is the Curiously Morbid Podcast. show. My name is Lucas King and I am your host for the Curiously Morbid Podcast. I'm a certified funeral celebrant and I'm going to bet that you have never heard of something like that. So basically what I do uh, to give you a little bit of insight in terms of what is a celebrant, what do we do, what is what are our goals, all those kinds of things. People ask me if I'm a pastor and uh, the answer to the question is no. Uh, I do not fall under that title. Um, I have the role of a pastor but not the goal of a pastor. And I have, uh, out of the 207 funerals that I have officiated so far, most of the families that I work with are like Joe and Shannon. They have never talked about death. They have never talked about... Now, obviously, Joe and Shannon, if he didn't get it, that was a metaphor for uh, the way most people function with and talk about death, dying, and end-of-life things. And so uh, most of the families I've worked with uh, are exactly like Joe and Shannon. They've never talked about it. They've never had discussions about it. Um, I Both uh, parties kind of live in this denial phase of the inevitable end-of-life stuff not happening. And I've also seen it where Joe is in denial about in this case, the baby, but let's just say what it is. Joe is in denial. The baby is kind of a metaphor, like a cancer or terminal disease. A lot of people just kind of pretend like their disease is never going to take over them. It's They're never going to die. Um, there's one more clinical trial, one more way to beat it. But the reality is, even if you beat it, even if you have a clinical trial, you're still, we are all going to, you and me, we will one day be dead. Comforting thought, right? 
And so we don't talk about this. And there have been situations where I've worked with families where Shannon, in this case, knows that Joe can't handle this. So Shannon makes all these arrangements. And another way for that story to have ended would be Joe and Shannon have that baby. They look at each other. They look down and Shannon goes, her name is Jennifer. The crib is being delivered today. I have painters coming next week. I've taken care of all the details because I knew this day was coming. I knew it would happen. And I was ready for what was going to take place. I've seen that happen. But most of the time, it doesn't. Most of the time, families are not prepared for this. This is a brand new show. This is the very first episode. I want to thank you so much for being here, for listening. In this episode, I'm going to give you a little bit of a who, what, when, where, why. Who am I? Why am I doing this? And what can you expect out of this show? Um, and it is, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, not very many people are going to listen to it. I'm just going to, uh, if you are a fan of this show, you will be one of the few because this is not a subject a lot of people want to talk about. It's not a subject that that people uh, look forward to talking about. But the interesting thing is that it is a subject that when people start talking about it, a lot of times you can't get them to stop. We have this curiously morbid thing about us that once we can flip that switch, once we can be okay with what this means, talking about mortality, we get to a point where we actually enjoy talking about it. And then you can be part of a group that goes out and makes party conversation really, really awkward. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation where someone says, what do you do? And I say, I'm a funeral celebrant. And they say, what is that? And I say, I officiate funerals. You know, I'm the guy that stands up there. And they say, are you, of a, past are you a pastor? And I say, no, I, I have the role of a pastor, but not the goal of a pastor. And what I mean by that is, uh, the, I'm going to use an analogy with the Catholic Church because that's kind of the best analogy I can give you. If you grew up or were raised Catholic and you die, you will have a Catholic funeral. You'll call a priest. The priest will come in. There is a Catholic way of doing things, and then that priest will do things the Catholic way. He will take your, your name, and he will plug your information into the Catholic way of doing things, and then he will do that. I take the exact opposite approach. When I walk into a service, uh, when I walk, when I first get called from, by a mortuary and I get the name of a family, I walk in and my first job is I'm an interviewer. So I walk in, I meet with the family. We have a family meeting where friends and family are invited to come and join. And we talk about the person's life who they were, what they loved, what brought them joy, what made them smile, what their personality traits were like, how it feels, how it felt in the room when they walked in. And I take all that information and I go home and I write a service and then I tell their story. And so as a, as a, uh, as a, as a celebrant, I'm an interviewer, storyteller, writer, speaker, and occasionally a little bit of a therapist and a coach in the sense that, uh, in the sense that I... Uh, talk uh, that, that I encourage people to grieve however they're grieving because there's no right or wrong way to grieve. Um, I just a little bit, so you know, just a little bit of my background. I have a bachelor's in philosophy and religion. I almost have a master of divinity and I uh, was a pastor uh, once upon a time. I uh, got removed from ministry uh, because I got divorced. And when I got divorced, I kind of, 
uh, I met new people of, of different faiths and different backgrounds. It became much more religiously ambiguous, uh, but I needed a job. And, and, uh, and so uh, by, uh, in the process of, of trying to find different things, getting into, the, getting into radio, getting into, uh, I was taught yoga for a while. I was a landscaper. I sold flooring. And uh, I, I, was, I was at a point where I just needed a job. And so my friend John, who is a, an Orthodox priest, he said, you should officiate funerals. And I said, John, that's crazy. What does that even mean? And so he introduced me to a funeral director. I got called for my first funeral. And I, uh, full disclosure, even though the family loved it and appreciated it, looking back now, it was just like anything that you do for the first time. It was... Um, not great. And uh, I've learned a lot since then. My funerals are much better. But I'd done about two to three funerals until uh, I, I heard some news that uh, a girl that I knew, I, I, she was right in between an acquaintance and a friend. Uh, you know that stage where you know somebody well enough, but you don't see them on a regular basis to say they're your friend. You ever been there? That's who she was. Her name was Joy. And I found out that Joy died in a climbing accident. I went to her funeral, and I was I was I was sad, but I was also interested in observing this funeral because I had been to a couple of funerals as a kid, but never once did I go. Oh, I wonder, you know, what is the minister going to say? How is this going to go? Like the only thing I can remember from my great uncle's funeral is he was a. Freemason. And so the Masons came and they talked, they did the Freemason thing. And I remember asking my mom, what is a Freemason? And she said, I have no idea. And uh, because nobody knows what a Freemason is, except for Freemasons. They know what Freemasons are. And uh, by the way, if you're a Freemason, email me, king.lucas.c at gmail.com. We'll have you on. Um, so at Joy's funeral, I had known her for a few years. We'd spoken on a number of occasions at the yoga studio that we were at, and I went to her funeral, and I had no idea that she had a Mormon background. And at her funeral, everything was about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and nothing about joy. And I was and am infuriated by that. And so in that moment, I really kind of committed myself that this is what I want to do. I want to tell people stories. I want people to be, uh, I want people to be honored in the way that they deserve it. If you're religious, then you should have a religious funeral. If you gave your life to the church, then you should, we should talk about how you gave your life to the church how you loved, uh, how you loved your faith, whatever faith that might be, and we should use elements of your faith in that. If you were not religious, we should not talk about a religion that is not yours. It would be as it would be like talking about Allah at a an evangelical Christian's funeral. You would not do that. That would be disrespectful. Yet. Because we are in a fairly religious culture here in America, at a at a at a, a service where someone is not religious or maybe went to church when they were a child, 
ministers, rent a reverends, reverend Rolodexes, are, are invited and looked to to come up, and they don't talk at all about the person. They don't talk at all about who you were. They talk about Jesus, God, and then they give an altar call at the end, which is like offering a drowning person a life raft. And that, my friends, is not okay. And so in that moment, my resolve became pretty strong. My grandma died March 27th of 2015, a little over five years ago. My grandpa died April 20th, 2019, almost a year ago. When my grandma died, I was fortunate enough to be able to say goodbye to her. I remember calling her. Her, her health had been a disaster for a while. We, were, we knew time was short. I had an opportunity to call her. I told her all the things that you want to say. I love you. I appreciate you. I, I, I cannot tell you how much you have meant to me in this life. And that was the last time I talked to her. My grandpa died about a year ago, and I called him. I was supposed to visit him in May. I called him. I said, Grandpa, I'm, uh, I have tickets to come and visit you in May. And he said, I probably won't be here. <laughs> and that was it. And we talked. I said, I love you. I said, I appreciate you. I said all the things I said to Grandma, basically. When Grandma died, I had four years to alter the way that I approached my relationship with my grandfather. I made every conversation more meaningful. Every time I spoke to him, I thought this could be the last time. And so I always said those things. I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Over and over again. Every time we hung up the phone, every time I went home to visit in Michigan, I would see him and I would think every time I left, is this going to be the last time? And I would make sure that when I hugged him, I... I thought this could be the last hug, and it was more meaningful. After doing this for about two years and doing over 200 services, I've learned so much. I see life so differently now. I remember the very first time I ever did a service for someone that was my age. We had the same birthdays. My, the family was telling me about cartoons that he used to watch that were the same cartoons that I watched. Life, the shortness of it became so much clearer. I've also had people who have said things to me. Almost every family says the same thing. We've never done this before. No one has ever told us how to do this. We've never talked about it. And so I want to do this show because how many of you have ever started a sentence with the words, when I die? Not if, but when I die. Have you ever started a sentence that way? If you died today, would your family know how you want to be remembered? If you died today, do you have life insurance to take care of your family? The average funeral costs $10,000. Are you able to cover that? Or are you going to place a financial burden on those that love you who are already in the midst of grief? Are there special things that you want at your funeral? Have you thought about how your family grieves and how they can grieve best for you? Have you? Is this the first time you've ever considered this? That's why we're here. That's why we're going to do this. That's why this show exists. It's for you. It's for you. I'm not mad at you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to walk through this with you. And I'm also here to make this kind of fun. Now, the idea of thinking about your death for many is not fun. 
It's not typically fun for me. I love life. Life is amazing. I have enjoyed. I have. Uh, we are sitting here in the midst of 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 a pandemic that uh, that that I don't think any of us have ever seen before, and I'm having the time of my life because I'm here talking to you. This is something I've been wanting to do for a while. I'm here talking to you. I'm here to help you. So I think we can actually have fun talking about what may happen because the thing is. This, death, is a part of life. And I know you hear that all the time. I know it sounds ridiculous, but death is no different than graduating from high school. Death is no different than getting married. The only difference between graduate, the only difference between death and graduating from high school and all these other things is that some people don't graduate from high school. Some people don't get married. Some people don't have children. Every single solitary person on this planet dies, hardly anybody talks about it. Out of 10, out of 207 or eight services, there have been two where I ask the question, how did they want to be remembered? And the family knows the answer. Over 200 times I have said, how did your loved one want to be remembered? And they said, I can predict it almost every time. I don't know. We never talked about it. The other reason, on top of having a conversation that most people don't have, trying to make it fun and bring a little bit of levity to it and try to give you a little bit of perspective and a little bit of, of priority and a little bit of meaning in, in your life is uh, I'm going to introduce you to some amazing people. In the next episode, you're going to meet a young lady named Megan. Megan uh, was uh, was in a very abusive relationship, and she re- she interacts with life very differently now because of that relationship. You're going to meet a friend of mine named Dave Warnock, who is a former pastor who was diagnosed with ALS a year ago, and he is going after life with a vengeance. And he's an amazing person. Absolutely amazing. So the goal here is to help you find some meaning and some perspective and some priority and to meet some amazing people who have faced death and are now living their life in a completely different way. And that might, might give you some hope and some guidance on how you can go forward. This podcast is going to be the main way we're going to do that. Um, I'm going to make a Facebook group. Hopefully, we're going to have some Zoom meetings because we all need a little bit more connection right now. And what I want to do is have some meetings and have some you know, Instagram lives or Facebook lives or something where we all get together and we all talk about these things because the amazing thing is, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. Have you ever been in a situation where there's something on your mind but you're afraid to say it and then you say it and someone else says, oh yeah, I feel that way. And then with two people in the room who feel the same way, another person feels bold enough to say, oh yeah, I've thought about that. And all of a sudden you realize that you all have been thinking and feeling the same way, but you just didn't have the guts to say it. We're going to have the guts to say it. We are going to have the guts to say it here. This is not going to be a show specifically focused on working through the five stages of grief. We're going to talk about grief uh, because you cannot talk about grief without talking about uh, death. And, uh, um, or you cannot talk about death without talking about grief. That's what I meant to say. 
But this is not going to be a show that's going to be specifically for helping you deal with grief. There are plenty of shows out there. There are plenty of resources out there. And I will direct you to all of those um, kind of as we go through this. So that's the who. Who am I? Uh, what is this show going to be about? Why am I doing this? Um, how can you get involved in this movement? Because, folks, this is going to be a movement. It is going to be. It's going to be a small movement. We're not going to be very big uh, because, uh, let's face it, if you are a person who's listening to this, you are one of the brave ones. You are one of the rare ones. You are now part of a small club who has the guts to talk about what happens when I die. So there are a few ways for you to be involved. Uh, number one, you can be a listener. So if you're listening, yay, you're involved. If you're listening, you're thinking about this, you're having conversations with your friends and your family about when I die, you're starting, you're starting a sentence with the phrase, when I die, uh, then that's great. You can be a guest on the show. Uh, on my Facebook post the other day, I asked for people who have faced a life-threatening diagnosis, people who are facing a terminal illness, people whose loved ones have faced life-threatening or terminal diagnoses. So if you've lost a person in your life, a person you love has died, and that has changed the way that you live your life, if you have a terminal diagnosis and you've beaten it or you're facing it, and that has changed the way you live and embrace life, if you have a life-threatening diagnosis and you've either overcome that or you are still fighting it, um, uh, I want to talk to you. If you are a person who has contemplated or attempted ending your own life, and you either are still in the throes of of working on that, or you, um, or you have decided after you look back that you did not, uh, and do and are thankful that that did not happen, uh, that you didn't complete suicide. Um, I want to hear from you. If you never thought you would live past your teenage years, I've met people who have said, "I never thought I'd make it to 30. I want to know why, and I want to know what making it to thirty or forty or fifty has been like for you. Um, I had somebody who reached out to me, like I said. Uh, who came up with some other ideas on things that I might that 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 might be uh, compelling on the show? So if you'd like to be a guest, my email is going to be in the show description. It's king.lucas.c at gmail.com. Uh, another way for you to be involved is my Luke the Celebrant Instagram page. So if you get on Instagram, you type in Luke the Celebrant. Depending on when you go, you will either find nothing or you will find a couple of pictures. Um, in my job, I am in a lot of cemeteries. I see a lot of headstones. I see a lot of names. And what I wonder is, what do those people do? What lessons did they teach their loved ones? What can people learn from their lives? We have incredible technological opportunities to let our loved ones live on. And one of the ways that I would like to have your loved ones live on is on the Luke the Celebrant Instagram page. Find a picture of you or you with your loved one Send that over to me and tell me about your loved one. I'll prompt you on some things, and then uh, and then you, we will put your loved one's picture up on the Luke the Celebrant Instagram page as kind of a a living cemetery where you don't just see a name, but you see the picture where you can read about the lesson of lessons of a person's life, and that person can live on. You can tell someone about the show. There's going to be a Patreon page that will come out um, because uh, you know uh, because that's what we do when we do podcasts. If you want to if you want to contribute, and we'll have uh, there'll be some rewards on what and I don't know what in the hell those are going to be. Uh, this show is going to right now. There's going to be a lot of episodes because I have nothing going on 
Um, when, when, uh, when life picks up again, I'll try to be as consistent as I can, but to be perfectly honest with you, the show will come out when it comes out. Um, and, uh, and so you might get two episodes a month. You might get four episodes a month. You might get a lot of episodes a month, depending on how busy I am uh, or how not busy I am. Um, now I'll end with this. There's one main goal of the show. And the best way for me to sum up the main goal of this show is through this poem, My Soul Has a Hat by Mario de Andrade. I counted my years and realized that I have less time to live by than I have lived so far. I feel like a child who won a pack of candies. At first he ate them with pleasure, but when he realized that there was little left, he began to taste them intensely. I have no time for endless meetings where the statutes, rules, procedures, and internal regulations are discussed, knowing that nothing will be done. I no longer have the patience to stand absurd people who, despite their chronological age, have not grown up. My time is too short. I want the essence. My spirit is in a hurry. I do not have much candy in the package anymore. I want to live next to humans, very realistic people who know how to laugh at their mistakes and who are not inflated by their own triumphs and who take responsibility for their actions. In this way, human dignity is defended and we live in truth and honesty. It is the essentials that make life useful. I want to surround myself with people who know how to touch the hearts of those whom hard strokes of life had learned, have learned to grow with sweet touches of the soul. Yes, I am in a hurry. I'm in a hurry to live with the intensity that only maturity can give. I do not intend to waste any of the remaining desserts. I am sure that they will be exquisite, much more than those eaten so far. My goal is to reach the end, satisfied, and at peace with my loved ones and my conscience. We have two lives, and the second begins when you realize that you only have one. I'm 35 years old. If I live till I'm 70, I'm halfway there. I've done services for people who died before they were 70. I've done people who have, had, who have died at 99. A lot of us don't realize that we only have one life until it's too late. It takes an illness or a death to reorient their lives. Then they're full of regret. Now, I don't want you to feel guilty. I have zero guilt for living in California and visiting my grandpa four or five times between the death of my grandma and his death. I want you to know and to go into this fully. I want your loved ones to know what you want so that they don't have to sit there and go, I don't know. I want you to be able to talk to your family about this stuff. We want to talk about having those tough conversations with family so that your family is not burdened. I want you to think about what happens if you get diagnosed with cancer or ALS, 
What does your financial picture, picture look like? Do you have a will? Do you have a ton of crap laying around that you think is valuable but no one cares about? If you died today, who would take over your social media? Who knows your passwords? Who's clearing your browsing history? Like I said before, I've done services for a 99-year-old woman who has outlived three of her husbands. I did a service for a 33-year-old woman who went in for a routine appendectomy, came home, had an infection, never left the hospital again, done a service for a 17-year-old car accident victim, a 31-year-old mother who died of a drug overdose, a 25-year-old suicide, an 18-year-old murder victim. You never know. My hope in doing this show is that you and your families will be better prepared for injury, illness, and death. My hope is that from this day forward, you start at least one sentence a week with the words, when I die. When I die, this is how I want to be remembered. When I die, this is the legacy I want to leave. When I die, this is what I want people to say about me at my funeral. When I die, this is what I want to happen. And then I want you to get up, I want you to get out, and I want you to go make it true. The Greek statesman Pericles said, What you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. Brene Brown defines spirituality as recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us, that our connection to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. Practicing spirituality brings a sense of perspective, meaning, and purpose into our lives. If this coronavirus thing has taught us anything, it is that we are not islands. It's that others matter. And it's that we matter to others. Every story is worth telling. Is the story that you're writing right now the one that you want told? If it's not, there's still time to write new chapters. I'll see you next time. Go in peace. Thanks for listening.